a Podcast One production. Rabbi Label Wolf is considered one of the world's greatest teachers of the mysteries and messages of Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition. Label's teachings focus on personal growth and emotional mastery. He uses the wisdom contained in the Kabbalistic text to help people discover the motivation behind their thoughts and emotions. Label says, your goal is not to battle the mind, but to reshape it. What follows is a conversation about the importance of intention, the power of our thoughts, and why people today yearn for more substance and depth in their life. I believe that people's quest for depth in life, why in our time we're finding that is that people are reviling against superficiality. There's something in them that's untouched that they want to express and they're questing for greater depth. And I think that is coming. It's happening. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Rabbi Label Wolf is the best-selling author of the book Practical Kabbalah. He is also the founder of Spirit Grow, an organisation dedicated to personal growth and spiritual awareness. In this episode, you will learn that we are the powerful creators of our lives. Rabbi Label Wolf, tell us a bit about your upbringing and how you got into spirituality, Jewish mysticism and the Kabbalah? Well, my upbringing, I'm the child of Holocaust survivors. Um, I was born in Poland, in Krakow. I was uh, two years of age when my parents emigrated to Australia. And I was raised in uh, a suburb uh, called West Brunswick, for the first dozen years of my life as such, at least after the age of two. I spoke fluent Polish as a child since I've forgotten, since then I've forgotten it completely. I remember in kindergarten speaking Polish to all my Australian uh, colleagues there in kindergarten level and they didn't understand me. We got on famously, nevertheless. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to uh, a Jewish school here, went on to university. I studied law. I studied psychology. I went on to complete my rabbinical studies in Israel and received rabbinical status from the chief rabbi. Um, I continued studying in the United States and uh, I had a sense that there were specific areas of Jewish spiritual teachings that interfaced with the development of people's quest for meaning um, and depth in life in the world at large. So I began lecturing on personal growth and development, taking concepts in psychology, taking concepts in deep Jewish spirituality, drawn from the Kabbalah, explicated by Hasidic teachings. And I developed programs to indicate that there are four areas of life where that interface was very real and we could make a Jewish contribution to it. I want to give a bit of context to how we know each other. So I, I, I don't know if you even remember this. So I was 19 years old, which was a f- quite a few years ago, and there was a yearning inside of me to know more about spirituality and something, 
something that I really wanted to just deep dive into. And being Jewish myself, I remember thinking, well, why don't I just find out information and start studying the Kabbalah because that would make sense. And really not knowing who to speak to or anything like that, I was given your details. And we used to sit at your kitchen table at your house and you would sit, we did it for about a year, and you would read me passages out of a beautiful text and we would talk through what those passages were. And I was thinking about this last year and I thought to myself, wow, look how many years have passed and look where I am now. And those teachings were so unbelievably transformational on my life. So I want to thank you for that, firstly. And secondly, it also was interesting because I had forgotten about that. And by the way, you still look 19 (laughs) years of age, nevertheless. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. So let's talk now about the Kabbalah. Can you explain exactly what that is? We receive the Torah at four levels of depth. The most superficial level, or no, not superficial, is the plain meaning of the words, um, the literary translative value of the words as a communication to know what we're talking about. Then there's a deeper level of the Torah called Remes. The first level is called Pshat, I should add. Remes is where the words belie a deeper innuendo, uh, a meaning that you have to quest for by searching beneath what it is trying to convey beyond the obvious. And that's called the remez, hint or allusion. Then there was a deeper level, level of the Torah given to yet a smaller circumspect group of people uh, at Mount Sinai, and that's called drush. Drush is when I need to resort to analogy or metaphor away from the ostensible subject matter in order to get a sense of what it is that I'm trying to convey. It's a bit like the young man who asked uh, Albert Einstein, uh, teach me the theory of relativity. Mm. And Einstein asked him, do you know any math? No. Do you know any uh, physics? No. So Einstein says, fine, I'll teach it to you. It goes like this. If you're sitting on a sofa with your girlfriend for 10 minutes it'll feel like a mere 10 seconds. But if you're sitting on a very hot stove for 10 seconds, it'll feel like a full 10 minutes. That's relativity. And that means drush, using metaphoric understanding. And that's why the midrash, which is a source of it, is made up of anecdotes and quaint stories beneath which lie immense truths. But then Moshe Rabbein or Moses taught the Torah at the fourth and deepest level to a much smaller grouping of people there. And that became known as the sod level. The word sod literally in Hebrew means secret. And it's identified with Kabbalah. It was taught from teacher to student, one-on-one. The student received the teaching, the Hebrew infinitive to receive le kabel, the noun Kabbalah. So Kabbalah means the process of receiving the deepest level of the Torah where reality is extracted into forces, energies, mathematical models, gematria, and really, really profound inner symbols of higher reality. That's where Kabbalah comes into it. However, it's inscrutable. And if you were to read the main text of it, like the the Zohar, you would either find it just simplistic or not understandable. 
So in the 17th century, uh, 18th century, Hasidism came onto the scene and began to explicate it into a set of terminologies that you and I can understand, especially the school of Chabad Hasidism made it intellectually um, assimilable. And that's what we study these days to understand the depths of the Kabbalah as such. How do we understand our relationship with God, the divine, through the Kabbalah? We have been constructed in a very specific manner. We're finite creatures. We're actually balls of energy, conglomerate energy, that becomes so dense that it appears as physicality. Physicality is concentrated spirituality. Now, once it becomes the human being, there are two dimensions. There's the pure spiritual dimension, and then there's the spacesuit that the soul is given to navigate the rarefied atmosphere of time and space. And that space is called the body, a very, very complex biological piece of machinery. And that's why, by the way, we have an absolute mitzvah for health and wellness, because unless we keep the body in good shape, then the innate personality of who we are in the soul can't express itself. So we are an interface between the spiritual flow of the neshama and the physicality of the body expressing in this lowest realm called asiya. And, of course, there are higher realms. So I can propose another kind of model we are a spiritual umbilical cord that flows through multi-levels of realms, worlds, um, sets of conditions, connected to the ultimate source, but ultimately ending here. And that's what we call the neshama. And therefore, we exist in all these levels. So to answer your question more specifically, we've been given the aptitude of mind. Intellectually, the soul can reach into the world through intellect. We've been given a heart, so to speak, which gives us our emotional channel of expression. But there's a deeper antenna that we have, which is the soul itself, where we reach into the world and into the worlds beyond mind, beyond emotion. It's not rational. It's not irrational. It's non-rational. It's beyond. And we call that the sixth sense in some systems. And that antenna allows us to understand, using the word understand in inverted commas, or experience, I should say, the nature of existence at a much profounder level, at what we can only call a spiritual level. And the neshama is the name for the soul. It's the name. It's The word neshama has two meanings. It's the generic word for soul, mm. correct, as you put it. But when we analyze the soul, it has actually five components, nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, and yechidah, which is the way that the soul experiences each of the four levels and infinity. Um, so there it's got a specific meaning of one of those five levels. But the word neshama generically means soul, yes. And we look at our relationship with God's source and the Kabbalah really describes that as something being within us, something internal to us rather than a lot of religions or beliefs see it as external. Why do you think that is? You see, because there's a tendency in the world to legitimise things through academia, 
So we read it as a narrative or as a text to be dissected and discerned in that manner. Whereas Kabbalah as such is not just an academic text, it's a pathway for us to navigate through life at multi-levels of consciousness. Now, the word consciousness is itself a very difficult word. Um, if I were to say that the way that the neshama flows through the physiology of the ear produces a consciousness called hearing, or if the neshama flows through the physiology of the eye, the consciousness is seeing, and through the brain, it becomes the consciousness of mind, mind consciousness, of which the English language has many words that overlap, like intellect, uh, uh, um, uh, mind, thoughts, cogitation, etc., intelligence. So ultimately, there's also the higher way in which we express consciousness. And when consciousness flows through all the facilities of the body, that's really what we call consciousness, when all these physiological bits and pieces are able to transmit the flow of the neshama, we have a consciousness. And here comes the interesting part. You and I have a higher self of the soul, I said there are five levels, that can actually choose degrees of consciousness and the flow of consciousness, the direction of consciousness. Take our current circumstances. We find ourselves in a plague, COVID-19, coronavirus. It tends to produce an emotion of fear, insecurity, um, uh, uh, even in many instances mm -hmm. leading to depressive states. Now, we can choose not to be there, not to go there. We can rearrange the flow of consciousness, and that is done in a physiological manner. We now know through the wonders of modern science where we can see the operations of the brain on a screen that any thought is really two nerve end fibers and a flow of neurotransmitters between those two nerve end fibers. Now, of course, that's highly simplistic, but it's still got a basic truth to it. As we think it more and more, that thought, it produces a concomitant feeling. Mm. All feelings flow through mind first. You don't have a feeling unless there's a mind disposition, an interpretation. Without an interpretation, there isn't a flow of feelings. So if I change my mind, literally, I change the way in which the thought operates through different nerve end fibers following a new path, I can create a positive thought that displaces the negative thought. If I repeat that again through meditative practice, I actually can create a new ambiance of who I am, my consciousness disposition. I can look at the future as the cup half full instead of the tendency which the media tends to project, the cup half empty, because the media just wants us to be scared because then we'll be glued to the screen and its ratings will improve and it'll have more uh, 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 commercial gain from that. Anyway, so the point is, yes, we can direct the flow of our consciousness through practice, 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 and change the ambience of our quality of life. Does the Kabbalah support that our beliefs, our thoughts sometimes create our reality? Absolutely. In even a literal sense, the Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of Hasidism, said, you are where your thoughts are. Mm. 
In other words, the way we perceive the world at any one point in time creates our immediate reality. And therefore, if we fear uh, somebody or something, then that is our reality. Um, but I want to take even a more literal vantage point. We create reality with our thoughts. The previous Lubavitcher notes in a work known as Likute Diburim on the first page that you can project a thought to someone across the other side of the globe and with your thought affect them materially and spiritually. In other words, we don't stop at the surface of our skin. Our consciousness flow leaves a signature, uh, a footprint in the sands of time and allows us to affect the world. And therefore, the more that people are in a state of fear, the more the insecure the world is. But turning it back to ourselves and our immediate family or the people living with us, that has a very real effect. Mm. So we have to be able to become developed, wise and masterful human beings that allow us to choose positive over negative. That requires technique, technology and practice. It's unbelievable because when I started practicing those sort of techniques to really harness my mind and be in control of it, I started just playing around with it and doing that exact thing by projecting loving thoughts onto things that I wanted to create in my life. And when you really get into that flow of being able to do that, you see these things unbelievably appearing and it's not anyone can do it. It's not just for some people. It's unbelievably easy once you actually start. Absolutely. And uh, it's amazing. You can see transformations taking place in front of your eyes. Sometimes, however, you don't see it in front of your eyes because the process may be slower. Mm. And it may well be that sometimes we never see it because it's so subtle or the time span is beyond our lifetime. Whatever it is, it's real. And we do affect changes through our attitudes, dispositions, and the way we express through thoughts, speech, and behavior. Let's talk about Kabbalah and life and death now. I find this a very fascinating topic. Can you explain to us how the Kabbalah sees the continuous life of the soul and also then obviously death of the body? Sure. What the Torah is teaching us through its deepest level of Kabbalah and explained through Hasidism, because otherwise I wouldn't understand it, is that um, we have many lifetimes. We are constantly involved in a reincarnative journey. It's called Gilgul HaNefesh in Hebrew, in the terminology, the cycle of the soul. And we're given an agenda in each lifetime. And to facilitate that agenda, we're given a specific set of parents. No, we don't choose them. We are given a specific body, its shape, its uh, uh, attributes, its strengths, its weaknesses. The soul, the neshama, who we essentially are, is always mature and complete. The soul doesn't grow up and it doesn't deteriorate. Souls were created at the dawn of time and they remain so. But the nature of the body gives the pathway or the obstacle course for the soul of that particular reincarnative journey. And then when that agenda is completed 
or not complete, but the extent to which the divine accountant sees the possibility of that lifetime, the body is removed. The spacesuit which protects the soul so it can operate in the rarefied atmosphere is removed. We die. The soul doesn't die. The facility of the soul to express at the lowest level of this world ceases. It still exists in all the higher realms and awaits its next journey, its next attempt to complete the task that may be incomplete or the ones that weren't set for the previous lifetime and a new agenda is set, whatever might be the case. What is, so we obviously come on, on to, to this lifetime to learn and that's a big thing in the Kabbalah, in Buddhism, and it's all about getting through life and, and, and doing these learnings to be able to then have that knowledge and then move on and, as you said, then come back again. Is there a point where the soul has learned everything that it needs to learn and it will no longer reincarnate? The soul is fully intact, fully learned, mm. knows the infinity of knowledge. However, before it comes down, it forgets everything because of the body. It has to retrain the body to allow that knowledge to become conscious and aware in this world. In fact, there's a lovely little uh, uh, um, uh, pictorial image of that. Just before um, we're born, an angel comes and taps us right here uh, below our nose, hence that little indentation, and we forget everything that the soul had remembered up there. And life then becomes a process of regaining that knowledge. But where I want to add a little uh, a shift from the way you presented the question is as follows. Life isn't a quest for learning and accumulation of information. That happens en passant. That happens in passing all the time. Mm. And it's important. But the main function of soul in body is what it gives, what it contributes. And we call that tikkun olam. Now, the expression tikkun olam is Kabbalistic. Most people who use it today in the contemporary sense don't even know it as such. This is the translation, fixing the world, making a contribution to the world. And they use it in a very generic sense. But tikkun olam in Kabbalah is very specific. It means doing 613 mitzvot in order to fix up and correct what happened at the dawn of creation. And herein lies a story. At the dawn of creation, one of the methods that Hashem used to create the world was to fill containers with light. Put it simplistically, the Kabbalistic story, and it's only a story, it's not reality, mm. the containers were too feeble to contain the light and therefore they broke and sparks and shards fell throughout reality and they're embedded in our reality. Doing a mitzvah takes that spark and returns it to its source, into its proper place where it should be. That's what a mitzvah does. A mitzvah is a good deed. Yeah, the word mitzvah comes from the Aramaic tzafta, which means connection. Mm. Commonly called good deed, but mitzvah means the point of connection of my soul with God through the agency of doing a real positive thing called a mitzvah, of which there are 613 of. And that corrects the world, brings it back to its pristine state where it was before it shattered, so to speak. 
so to speak. So the point that I wanted to make is it's what we do in life mm. and actions in life. That's what, why most of the mitzvahs are action-oriented. We have to learn. We have to know, as you put correctly, but only in order that we give out and become a partner, a co-creator in the unfinished enterprise called life. There was this beautiful poem that I, I heard a Kabbalistic rabbi say, life is true, life is real, and death is not its goal. From dust you are and dust returneth was never said about the soul. And it just completely sums up exactly what we're talking about. Yes. I remember hearing something many years ago, and it always stuck with me, and I'm pretty sure it was from the Kabbalah, that when a baby comes onto the earth, and it's the reason that it sleeps so much is because its soul is not content in its body yet and it needs to constantly go back up to source. I don't know if that's the reason why a baby sleeps so much. Um, I suspect that the soul is learning to become comfortable in the body. Mm. But you do touch on a very, very profound teaching, which is, the soul does feel uncomfortable in this rarefied atmosphere of our physical reality. And it yearns to go back. It doesn't want to be here. So the, the enigma is, if it wants to go back, how come it stays? Why do we have this quest for life against all odds we want to live when the most natural state of our higher self is that we should die, meaning that the neshama returns to the source where it wants mm. to be, its home. So this is a very, very deep teaching as to why it stays here. There is a teaching in the most profound Kabbalistic work called Sefer HaYetzirah, the book of creation or the book of formation. It was authored by Abraham. It predates the Zohar by uh, millennia. Um, there the teaching is, amongst other many, many teachings, cryptic teachings, don't suggest you sit and study the text as such, um, the stone at the top of the wall falls furthest from the wall, which means that the stone at the top has more potential energy and therefore as it falls it has more kinet the kinetic energy, allows it to roll away further from the wall the higher that it begins. And what that means is, spiritually, that which is at the highest spiritual level descends to the deepest physical level. And therefore, that which is most physical contains within it the spark of the highest spirituality, mm. which is, by the way, why when we eat food, food sustains us animal food, vegetational food, and inanimate food, chemicals. When we eat it, then we live, which is, again, contrary to reason. We are the highest level of creation. Why are we dependent on the lower forms? And the answer is because in the lower forms, a spark of the highest source. And therefore, eating the food, we extract the highest source within the food, and that animates us and gives us our strength as such. So it's the lowest things that ultimately. Now, to answer your question finally, after that circuitous route, um, the body is physical and finite, and therefore it contains a spark of higher spirituality than even the soul. 
And it's the highest spark within the physical body that traps the soul and keeps it here perforce against its wish to return. Mm. And that's part of the design because there's an agenda that the soul has to do here despite itself. Wow, that's unbelievably fascinating. Something I wanted to explore a bit with you as well was the process of death and the Kabbalah. Yes. So they say that there's the angel of death, which is Azrael. And there was an old tale I was told that I actually find quite comforting. They say that if a Jewish person is, is, is dying, there should always be a space left at the end of that person's bed for Azrael so Azrael can come and guide that person to the next life or to source. Can you tell us a bit about that? Firstly, we are told, interestingly, of the angel of death is completely an angel. Mm. Uh, he's not a seat of negativity. No. Indeed, indeed, Satan, Satan, whereas in the uh, Christian theologies and some others, is the competitor to God and is the epitome of evil. In Judaism, Satan is also an angel. Mm. Um, from the Hebrew, liston, which means to test. The function and creation and purpose of Satan is to test us to, in, in order to allow us to grow and evolve and develop by overcoming the test. The angel of death is different. He's got an agenda and a, an agenda that God has given him. You're the one who has to take life away when life is meant to be over. Mm. There is a certain bit of give and take. For example, one of the uh, very great Talmudic individuals, um, defied the angel of death and how we are told that if you're studying Torah, the angel of death can't take you away at that moment. And this guy kept studying day and night, nonstop, you know, apart from uh, sleep, he was eating, sleeping Torah as such. And his time was up. So he had to go. But how was the angel of death going to trick him? So the angel of death created a sudden storm out of nowhere, which was so unseasonal that the rabbi got up and went to the window and at that point, zap. It stopped learning, stopped studying, and therefore the angel of death got him. Um, so yes, the angel of death does take us to our next station in life. Another teaching about the angel of death is he doesn't discriminate. When God says people have to die mm. as a consequence of bad behavior or what have you, he does not discriminate between good and bad. And he can't discriminate. He doesn't know. And therefore, good die and bad die, like in a plague, like what we're having today. Do you, does the Kabbalah see the point of death as being already worked out prior to the soul entering the body? That, Sarah, is a trick question. <laughs> because, yes, I'll tell you why, not without any intention on your part. Um, we're living in the uh, consciousness of the flow of time. Mm. We're trapped in a time frame of present, past, and future. Mm. Every moment of the past, present, and future if we draw a radii from the arc of time connecting to a center point, that center point has implicit within it every aspect of present, past, and future in one instance. That center point is a metaphor for God. 
from God's point of view, there isn't any past, there isn't any future. It's the one instant. Now, even that is totally an inadequate uh, metaphor, but it gives us a sense of things. So when you and I ask the question, does God know what our life is going to be? Does God know fatalistically the moment of our death? Mm. The answer is, of course, because there's no flow of time. Mm. It's all the one instance, and it's implicit within that one point. And to quote Maimonides, Rambam, in Hebrew, the uh, Ein Adam Yachol the Burov, or something like that. No human being can understand this idea with any clarity. It's fascinating. And, you know, you're not the only person that has talked to me about time. The, the Time is like a human concept. Yes. I've spoken to Bruce Lipton, Joe Dispenza, yes. and they all talk about the yes. exact same thing, all of these, you know, neuroscientists. So it's a, yes. I've always found that concept absolutely fascinating. Let's talk now about the Kabbalah and something that a lot of people and I find really fascinating and animals. How does the Kabbalah see the soul of an animal coming onto this earth and the role that animals play with humans? Anything in existence possesses a spiritual energy to maintain it. There are four levels of existence, human, animal, vegetational and inanimate. All possess soul. A stone possesses soul. However, the body of each of those realms is different and allows the expression of the soul only to such an extent. So the soul of a flower is not able to express the same way as a soul of a human being. Now, the difference between all four is obvious. uh, we call the inanimate domem. The domem um, is the level where there's no locomotion, there's no growth, there's no evolution development as such, ostensibly on the surface. On the other hand, a plant has locomotion, has movement. It grows, it inclines towards the sun. In other words, the uh, spiritual force is allowed to express a little bit more. In an animal, it's even more the body is even more elastic to allow the neshama to express rudimentary communication between animals as such. And they are able to move much more freely. And the human being has a body which is that much more um, evolved that it's able to have a sense of consciousness, as you said, present, past and future, and have a sense of higher meaning and seek fulfillment and happiness and not just um, um, a survival instinct per se, like an animal does. So every one of them is absolutely valuable, holy, if you will. Uh, An animal no less than a human being. There's a wonderful story about a true life anecdote of the Friedrich Rebbe when he was walking with his father. He was a young man, not a Rebbe then, the Friedrich Rebbe. And they were talking some profound, deep philosophical uh, uh, notions. And just the Friedrich Rebbe just picked a leaf off a tree as they were walking. Father stops him and says, do you realize that you've just taken the life of this particular soul and body called leaf. Mm. So we have to treat everything with great sense of wonderment, call it holy, call it reverence, call it old-fashioned words, but everything has to be treated honorably. We can't eat food simply because we're hungry. Mm. 
that's animalistic. A human being approaches a table, says a blessing, a bracha, which is a way of evolving a pointed uh, consciousness flow called kavana, focused intention, and has to have the intention, I'm going to borrow the soul spark of the food into me so that I can express the soul of the food in a more profound way in the world. So, yeah, everything possesses soul, no matter what it is, and we have to treat everything with a great degree of honour. It's so fascinating, and it's unbelievable as well that animals do play that close link with humans, and a spiritual teacher actually was saying this to me the other day, our family dog is nearing her last few days of life, and she said to me, you know, you look at this animal and, and, and thank it for its friendship, say that you're happy for it to move into the light now when it's ready and know that this beautiful dog chose the role of a dog to come onto this earth to fulfil something that then brightened your life. And I, it just like, it really stuck with me because I thought, wow, these animals, they're so, they give their lives up to humans a lot of the time and become our best friends and they choose to do that, which is so unbelievable. Yes, it is. Um, there's an interrelationship between all things in existence. When we say in our prayer, Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad, which we translate superficially, hero, uh, here Israel, the Lord is one, God is one. What we're really enunciating is oneness. What we're really enunciating is the sense that everything is interrelated and everything has a sense of oneness about it. So when we talk about the four levels of existence, human, animal, uh, vegetation, inanimate, we are all interconnected ultimately in one total unit. It's more profound between the communication systems of human and animal because there's more communication that can take place between them. However, it's harder with the nature, with plants, and yet we do. We end up communicating with nature in a more subtle way and certainly with all things of the world. But yes, animal and man have an interrelationship. And when a soul is sent down and becomes expressed in an animal, it's got its agenda to be able to make its contribution to the world in its own way. you touched on before that I've always found extremely fascinating in all all realms of spirituality is this idea of oneness, but also this idea of duality. Can you talk us through through that? We are dualistic. We're dualistic in many ways. And the reason we're dualistic is because as the neshama, the soul, flows through the channel of the spiritual umbilical cord and becomes us, it divides into two strands as it enters into our being. One strand we call the nefesh bahamis, the animalistic side, and the other one is called nefesh elokis, the godly side. But let me give you a more uh, contemporary understanding. The animalistic side is not the meaning animals, it means it's instinctive, the way an animal is instinctive, and it seeks personal security, food, clothing, shelter, self-actualization, Maslow's model, hierarchical model. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with these. They're absolutely necessary, food, clothing, shelter, uh, uh, etc. But the thing is, the Nefesh Bahamis doesn't know any boundaries, doesn't have any boundaries. Food, wants more and more food, never satisfied. Um, only eats hot cuisine, will only eat what Master Chef is able to provide. Um, uh, one ice cream is not enough. You've got to have five. Um, a plain cake, sponge cake, no. I need a seven-layer chocolate cake. In other words, the Nefesh Bahamish wants more and more. Same with uh, clothing. I've got to have three wardrobes full because there will come a day in five years' time when I don't have the right outfit. So I've got to have that many clothes in my – and they've got to be all designer label. And when it comes to shelter, well, a modest home is not enough. I've got to have one from Gone with the Wind, the mansion with pillars in front, chandeliers in every room, including the toilet. In other words, the Nefesh Bahamis just doesn't know when to stop. And yet, it maintains our physical integrity. It keeps us alive. Food, quest for food, clothing, shelter. Comes along the other strand of the soul, the Nefesh Elokis, and it more or less tames the wild stallion of Nefesh Bahamis, which if you can tame it, you can capture its brute strength, give it boundaries, and use it for your higher purpose. So the test of life is to resolve this inner conflict. Me, I, I need, I feel insecure, I'm afraid, I need to protect myself. And to be able to transition into the more um, altruistic approach of, well, life is about you. It's what I can do to facilitate you. I remember when I was doing my master's in uh leadership theory, and I was reading books, and I came across a field called servant leadership. And I remember reading a book, this was 35, 40 years ago, more, and uh, it tells you how young I am. <laughs> and, uh, and the book was called Synchronicity, and was written by Joseph Jaworski. See, 40 years later, I can remember it with such an impact. His father was Leon Jaworski, the Watergate prosecutor, interestingly. And it postulated the notion of servant leadership. What does that mean? A true leader isn't someone who uses positional power and control to be able to cause other people to do what I want them to do. Egotistic leadership, me, I, I know best and you do what I say. But servant leadership means that I facilitate the growth of those around me. A true leader becomes responsible and recognizes his or her responsibility to allow those around him or her to grow, to evolve, to be something higher as such. So if I can transition my lower order self, my ego self, my Nefesh Bahamis, by taming it through my higher self, then I'm able to evolve as a human being. So I need to resolve the duality into one. Mm. And in that moment of oneness, when the wild stallion is tamed and I'm able to channel its strength into higher cause in the world, I have a moment of unity and oneness. And that is the same with all things in life. Love is a quest for unity and oneness. Love means I want to bridge the chasm between me and you. I want to love you. And there are many ways of appropriating love and living, loving appropriately, etc. Parent, child, mm. spouse, spouse, person, friend, etc., etc. Love, and I'm sorry, I'm going to add one more point. Love is something which 
people just don't understand well today. We think that in living in a democratic world and applying political instruments to emotions, love should be a two-way street. It should be democratic. I love you if you will love me. But the truth of the matter is that's totally incorrect. Love is a one-way street, not a two-way street. I will love you if you will love me is a business transaction. It's a conditional statement. And it really means I want to be loved. I will love you, but only as long as you love me. If you don't love me, I turn my love off. Well, what, who's the object of love? Me. I want to be loved. I need you. That's not love. Love is only giving. Love is only giving out, sharing. It flows from the sphere of chesed, kindness, generosity, contribution. It's true that if I love you truly, it's very likely you will love me as well. But I don't love you in order that you should love me. That's where the error is. There's a wonderful teaching in Sefer Tanya, the book of Tanya, which is my favorite Hasidic teachings mm. of Kabbalah. And in it, the Alter Rebbe quotes Mishle, Proverbs, as follows. As a face is reflected in water, so do we reflect each other. Meaning, if I love you, it's highly likely that that'll be reflected back to me. But I don't love you in order that you should love me. That's what altruism is. That's a resolution of distance. It's a resolution of my two soul systems. Duality becomes unity, becomes echad, becomes one. It's true. It's that unconditional. You know, when you love something unconditionally, you're free. And that's why we have so such a close relationship with dogs, because dogs mm. love us unconditionally. It's even been uh, demonstrated how well that works in terms of development of the individual. There's research in prisons in the United States, jails, that those they, they gave um, inmates um, a pet. And those inmates who had a pet had a much lower recidivity rate, meaning returning to jail, returning to life of crime, than those who didn't. There's something that when we are on the receiving end of unconditional love, it grows us as a person. That's beautiful. Can you tell me why do you think there's such a yearning nowadays that people are moving into wanting to know more about spirituality and a lot of the time moving past religion? I think there are a couple of reasons. One, religion has shot itself in the foot. I think what religion may have been once upon a time, which means a way of providing a pathway for people to evolve in a more profound way. Well, religion has been caught red-faced too many times over mm. in many respects and uh, exploited the masses in many respects as such, or putting it even less strongly, it's become irrelevant in many instances. Like, I'm a Jewish person. I visit many synagogues. I find the vast majority of synagogues terribly uninspiring. Now, I'm a rabbi and I say that. Mm. Um, what I mean by uninspiring, like you take the prayer book and you read the words and I watch people do that, even do it with intention, mm. but it's so superficial. And 
People come to synagogue for all sorts of ulterior motives, uh, social motives, uh, meet your friends, um, assuage guilt, because I must go to synagogue, it's whatever might be the reasoning as such. Instead of it being what I experience in the way that I've been taught, a Hasidic experience of elevation, of joy, allowing the words by having studied the inner spiritual meaning to become uh, wings that allow me to soar and fly. I take from the words and then I soar as a consequence of that and reach higher lengths and the music the tuneless allows me to express more purely and it becomes an expression which I can touch godliness more profoundly and individually. That's the kind of religion that I sought and found in the Hasidic world of Chabad as such. And in our synagogue, which is the one that my son and I run, um, that's the way it is. We meditate during the davening. We have practiced nigun during the davening. We study the depth of the words during davening. Davening being a verb used for not just prayer, stilted prayer, but something more profound, etc. And yes, I'm the first one to say that, unfortunately, the word religion has a very poor PR, but if we take it apart and look at the spiritual truths that are implicit and adopt them and use them individually and have a good master teacher with us at the time, it can be a wonderful experience. I think intention, something that you just touched on before, is a fascinating concept and something that I, after doing a lot of studies and a lot of reading of different spiritual texts, is something that I do in my everyday life. You know, before I do an interv- interview, I have an intention. Before I write an email, I set the intention of why I'm writing the email. So I go about very consciously using intention in my life. How does the Kabbalah look at intention? The word for intention is the word, as we said earlier, kavana in Hebrew. It comes from the Hebrew word lekaven, which means to provide a direction, a compass bearing. But it means a compass bearing of consciousness, of flow of spirituality. So when you want to relate intimately to something, you must first create a spiritual shape to the circumstance so that you can relate more intimately with it. And that's what the word kavana means in the spiritual sense. The common translation is intention. But what is the common denominator? It's focusing. How we focus, with what intent we focus, what's the goal of my pathway in the next moment before I open my mouth and speak before I actually reach out and take the piece of bread. As you said, before I actually sit down and write the message, and today, just segueing on your point, writing a message today is a terribly superficial, flippant kind of activity. Now, I know we can't go backwards in time, Mm. but I remember a time when I had an inkwell in front of me and a pen and a nib, and I had to write. And you wrote a letter and you thought a lot about it because you didn't want to have blotches on the paper. You wanted to get it right. So you have to think before you wrote any word, any phrase, any sentence down. So be nice and tidy and smooth. And then you had a piece of communication that came from deeper depth and you put it into an envelope and you got a stamp and all this was 
process and you had to take it to the letterbox and then you waited a week perhaps before you got a response and therefore everything was done with much more depth of thought. Today on Facebook, I'll just note mm. the very first superficial idea that comes into my head, later feel sorry for it and I can't do much about it. At least on the iPhone I can take a message back before somebody has seen it. But even then, uh, it's maybe too late. We've become too superficial. We haven't got cover now. We don't practice that focused intention. And I think that's a real loss. I believe that people's quest for depth in life that you mentioned earlier, why in our time we're finding that is that people are reviling against superficiality. There's something in them that's untouched that they want to express and they're questing for greater depth. And I think that is coming. It's happening. What is the most profound mystical experience that you have had? I mean, I'd like to tell you that uh, it was uh, a sunrise and the sun rising out of the water and being there and suddenly I became all one with nature and the world, but it wasn't that. I mean, those things are beautiful and, and I, I truly see them as part of the spectrum of reality and the most spiritual experience. My most uh, spiritual experience was my first audience with my master, the Baba Chirabha. I mean, take it forever it's worth. Mm. From my point of view, I'm entering into a room where there is an individual who is a prophet, who sees transparency through people's souls, where you're spiritually naked in front of the individual, where there is nothing to hide, and you're receiving advice and you're receiving direction from someone who is totally beyond the people of today and, to my mind, registers with any of the great prophets of yesteryear and displays the kind of courtesy and welcoming and kindness that you would expect of the parent, your parent at the warmest moment. To me, when I remember that first audience, which I, I was told lasted an hour and a half, and I barely remember the contents of it. I had to quickly write down later on, so I refer to what was said at a series of questions. But that to me was a, a moment of elevated transportation where two souls met at a very profound level and has continued to imprint me all my life. It's funny you say that, you know. I remember hearing Ram Dass say that about his his spiritual teacher in India that when they were together, there was no time and it was mm -hmm. just this absolute feeling of love and, and yes. oneness. What was the most prolific thing that he taught you? There was a good number of things that my notes record, but there's one that stands out in my mind at the moment and it goes to the core of self-esteem and self-worth and being a, um, a contributor to people and their lives. I was with my wife in that audience, in that yechidus it's called, from the Hebrew word yechida, yechud, aloneness with uh, someone. Um, and I was going to, uh, apparently one of my questions was whether I was to take a certain position. Now my wife, who knows me very, very well, felt that I was inadequate to take that position. She's my severest critic in a very good way. 
Um, and she has a bit of chutzpah. So in front of the Rebbe, she says, but he's not really capable of that. And the Rebbe answered two things. One, he asked me, do I know Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet? And I nodded. He said, you will teach Aleph. That's the first thing he said. Second, he said, looking at my wife, the position will make the person. And that was the, that was the response. If you have anything that is within you, you already are gifted to be able to share it with somebody else. Don't ever say to yourself, I don't know enough to share my life with somebody else. Mm. I don't have enough life's experience. Don't practice false humility. Everyone who lives has adequately acquired something to share. Always know that you must share with others. Oh, that's so beautiful. What is your greatest hope for society today? That's a tough one. I guess it's self-realization. It's to move away from a posture of fear, insecurity, or jealousy and envy, and to recognize that every individual in society possesses the exact know-how and wherewithal to be able to live at peace within himself or herself and then to have a society accordingly and a world accordingly. I think if we can move away from our personal fears and trust that there is goodness in the whole process of creation and life itself and that you and I have the ability to express it, we can transform the world, we can transform society into a real moment of spiritual nuclear fission, what we call in our tradition the coming of Moshiach, a messianic moment which transforms the world. But that requires every single individual to gain that self-confidence and know that they're there purposefully and they have the ability to make a contribution to the life of others. What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn? It's the application of a lesson that took me longest to learn. And that is that while I was a teacher, supposedly, of spiritual teachings of the Torah, down to the level of Kabbalah and Hasidus as such, or up to the level of Kabbalah and Hasidus as such, um, to be able to, in my own personal demeanor, and behavior and uh, expression to internalize the teachings so that I become a living exponent of what I was preaching, so to speak. That requires work. And the kind of work that we practice in Chabad's brand of Hasidism to do that is called Hisboinanus, which is a meditative process. Hisboinanus means to take our master's wisdom teaching and internalize it. How do you do that? We study in the morning for half an hour, an hour, a piece of discourse by a master. We then dissect and take one strand and we spend time meditatively making it part of us, internalizing it into my consciousness of mind and emotion. 
for the purpose that during the course of that day, it'll become expressed and I'll become a living embodiment of that. I think that is probably the most uh, important and possibly the most difficult task, not in the process, but to maintain it with you throughout the course of the day, through the course of your lifetime, and to always be mindful of that teaching and every day more and more and more. What's your favourite prayer? Um, it's said on Shabbos, on the Sabbath, it's called Nishmas Kol Chai. Um, and it's a prayer that speaks wondrously about how the whole totality of the universe, to use an antiquated expression, pays homage, bows down, practices a humility in context of the absolute wonderment of the all. I can only use a, um, a parallel notion. The sun spends 12 hours moving from the east to the west. The orb of its pathway is a slow bowing down to the divine creator, indicating I have a function that you have given me and I will carry it out dutifully day after day. And I bow down to you, practice humility and be able in so doing, carry out the truth of my beingness. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is when you're true to yourself and have carried out what is within your reckoning, the truest expression that you can to the people around you. I think greatness is if you are able to positively influence one person in a way that makes them happier and better, you're great. Well, uh, Rabbi Leibowulf, you must be great because you impacted me at such a young age. <laughs> so thank you so much for everything that you have done, not only for myself, but for everyone else who's heard your beautiful teachings. It's uh, been a pleasure. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.